6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 5 through 8. Let's start. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for the opportunities you put before us as we plunge forward into dark times, as we watch the confusion on the whole earth, abroad and domestically, the misinformation and the lies and the deceit and the decay of our culture. We, we just see it all happening so fast, Father. But we thank you that you are in control, that things are happening just as you, as you have ordained them to. So we do pray, Father, make us ever more sensitive to what you'd have of each of us in the days ahead. We thank you for this time when we can meet in peace and safety and to open your word. And we just pray that you would indeed open your word to our hearts and lives as we commit not just this evening but ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're in Second Chronicles. We've been through First Chronicles, which... Parts of which were pretty dreary, I think. It had all the excitement of reading a telephone book. But uh, Second Chronicles um, is dealing with Solomon and the subsequent kings. And there's a lot more issues and actions that will surface in these chapters. And so we're in chapters 5 through 8 tonight. Now, the book of Chron both books of Chronicles, of course, are in the Hebrew mean are words concerning the days. The Greek translation, the Septuagint, calls them, in effect, the supplements, because they sort of are the supplements to First and Second Kings. It's appropriate, a prerequisite to this book really would have been to go through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Now, the Latin Vulgate call it the Chromacon, which, from which we get Chronicles. But First and Second Kings are the political record, First and Second Chronicles, which is a recap of much of that, it, from, from the point of view of the priests and the Levites, and it extols the dynasty of David. It's a real focus on the southern kingdom. There are 20 whole chapters and 24 parts of other chapters that are occupied with matter that's not found anywhere else. So it's not as if... There, there are a lot of deletions, in a sense. There's stuff in First, Second Kings you won't find in Chronicles. At the same time, there are things in Chronicles and not in the others, always with the viewpoint of raising the uh, reign of David and his, and, and his dynasty. So they take the form of a history. David and Judah, of course, are the focuses. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles were probably all written together. Most scholars assume that the, 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 Ezra and, uh, probably wrote them all, or at least people under his supervision, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then uh, and the Chronicles. Apparently, a very substantial library was available to the chronicler, because there's lots of allusions to documents uh, to and from Cyrus, Artaxerxes, Darius, Artaxerxes, Longimanus. These prominent people have letters back and forth uh, in, in referenced here. But of course, if you remember the monarchy profile from Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, it, uh, the monarchy itself starts with Saul, then David, then Solomon, and then of course there's the split of the, uh, of the uh, 
uh, kingdom to north and south. And uh, first, and se- first Samuel took, uh, uh, takes us up to the end of Saul. Second Samuel really focuses on David. And first and second Kings carries it from that point on. So the book of so we have the book of Chronicles, which First Chronicles is roughly parallel to Second Samuel, and then Second Chronicles will be from Solomon on, and which is where we are now. So that's just by way of overview. And uh, we had genealogies rather drearily presented. I, I apologize in in uh, the first few chapters of Chronicles, and then uh, the reign of David for the rest of the First Chronicles, and we've been through that now. We opened the reign of Solomon last time, and that's where we are now, getting into that. And then that will be followed by the Davidic dynasty all the way up to the Babylonian captivity, with some surprises along the way for most of us, I think. But now Solomon was quite a guy. His real name was Jedediah, given to him by Nathan when he was born. Solomon was his royal name. And uh, uh, Shlomo, or Solomon, is uh, the name by which we know him. Lemuel is regarded by many of the rabbis as a private, intimate name of Bathsheba, of her, for her son. And the Proverbs 31 is really uh, her words to him for a number of reasons. And he calls himself the Koleth, or the preacher, when he wrote Ecclesiastes. And we suspect he's also the Aguar, the collector in the Proverbs 30. David's second son by Bathsheba, the first son died. First, uh, he was the first after their legal marriage, in other words. Probably born about 1035 B.C. Remember, we're B.C., the, number, the numbers will go down as we go forward in time. He succeeded his father on the throne uh, when he was very young, probably about 16 to 18 years old. In fact, David seems to almost make reference to that as he prepares, makes preparations on Solomon's behalf for some of the tasks ahead. And uh, his, uh, his elevation to the throne was deliberately precipitated by Nathan the prophet, not Nathan the son, but Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba because of Adonijah's rebellion. Adonijah was getting ambitious, starting a rebellion, and so they nipped that in the bud by getting David to announce Solomon publicly as his replacement and uh, to, take, to deal with that. Adonijah was the fourth son of David, and his, after the death of his elder brothers, Ammon and Absalom, uh, he felt he was the heir apparent to the throne, so uh, he uh, uh, caused himself to be pro- proclaimed king while his father was think, on his, you know, virtually on his deathbed. But Nathan Bathsheba induced David to give orders that Solomon should at once be proclaimed and admitted to the throne. But he did that very publicly to nail that down. And so Adonijah fled, took refuge at the altar, and he received a pardon from Solomon because he, on the condition that he shows himself a worthy man. You'd think that he, some learning would have taken place, but he tried again afterwards, a second attempt, and then was seized and put to death. So much for Adonijah as far as we're concerned here. First Kings 2 deals with all of that. And uh, Solomon probably would have spared him again, except uh, he had his own incestuous and treasonous desire to have Abishag, uh, his father's concubine. She was probably the person in the opera called A Song of Songs. But uh, in any case, he uh, apparently spared the rest of his brothers who had joined Adonijah. So he was a very forgiving guy, especially in those early years. Abiathar was banished to Anathoth for treason. That, that fulfilled a prophecy on Eli, Second Samuel. This all again, back in early First Samuel. Joab the murderer was put to death because David told Solomon to take care of that. And uh, a number of these others were cleaned up uh, in, in accordance to David's instruction to Solomon. All the way through some turbulent times, he has very reverent dutifulness to his mother. So Bathsheba and Solomon were very close, and that seems to support the conjectures about Proverbs 31.
And uh, so David gave the parting words and gave him all these instructions uh, before he died. And Solomon, as soon as he uh, settled his affairs and took over, the first thing he did is create an alliance with Egypt by marrying the daughter of the Pharaoh. And uh, strangely enough, uh, she's the one that's favored in a number of ways, but you don't read much about her in the, in the text. And uh, the latter half of Solomon's reign was uh, clouded by idolatries. He first is very tolerant. He married a lot of women, primarily for political reasons, alliances and so forth. You generally don't go to the war if, you're, if your daughter is queen of the realm you're shooting at. So that's sort of a, that was one of the ways that they developed peace, was through these allegiances. But um, then with these strange women around, a thousand of them, can you imagine? 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, he becomes very tolerant of their pagan ways, but tolerance then breeds to um, uh, more than tolerance, involvement. And so uh, uh, that's a, that's a, there's some lessons to be learned there. Um, seven years he took to build the temple, 13 years to build his own palace. Did the temple first. He waited four years before starting it, though, strangely enough. Then took 13 years to build his own, after that, build his own palace, which is a a huge place, 100 cubits long, 500 broad, lofty roof with 45 cedar pillars so that the whole hall was called the, for, ha, ha, the house of the forest of Lebanon. And that term actually appears in the text. Many people don't understand what that is. So uh, it, it was a term for this huge front-end hall as part of the royal palace and uh, the, the porch of pillars and so forth. In front of this again was the hall of judgment of the throne room. And the side of this was set up as an apartment for the uh, queen's consort, the, pharaoh, the daughter of the pharaoh. And uh, typologically, though, many people don't study Solomon as a type. We're looking here at the sod, or the mystical side, or the remes, maybe, the allegorical side of the tale. And uh, as you know, Hebrew hermeneutics tends to put a big emphasis on patterns and typology. And uh, Solomon is characterized throughout his entire life by sixes. Uh, six lions on either side, and six of this and six of that, all the way through. His salary will encounter in, our, in the, this in the next session is uh, 666 talents per year. That's huge, but it's also the number itself is uh, provocative. Um, the seal of Solomon is a mystery. Uh, the, the, what we think of the Magan David, the shield of David, that is a symbol of Judaism, can't be traced earlier than about the 14th century AD. And uh, there is some scattered fragmentary evidence that many centuries earlier, that same symbol that we now associate with the state of Israel was known as the Seal of Solomon. And it was an occultic symbol of the mystics. And so uh, a good sound information is hard to come by, but some of that is very suggestive. It's interesting that Solomon in the scripture, in the New Testament, is always in a diminutive sense. Uh, lilies, in, uh, uh, you know, in all Solomon's glory, he wasn't arrayed as nice as a lily. In other words, he's great, but not quite great enough is the way his term is used all through in several occasions. And so that gives you a, a sense that the Holy Spirit may have in a, a sort of a subtle agenda regarding Solomon. Well, in any case, so much for a little review of some of the other topics background. Let's just jump right in. We're in chapter 5 tonight, and the ark is going to be brought to the temple. And uh, thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. In the previous session, we saw him build the temple in all its majesty. A majesty that has never been equaled. And uh, there have been bigger places built. 
but not with the expense, not with the gold, not with all the uh, appurtenances. So anyway, that's all behind us now. That's all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated. And the silver and the gold and all the instruments put he among the treasures of the house of God. David was not allowed to build the temple. He says, no, no problem, I'll pay all the bills. So it was David's abundance. It was David's relationship with Hiram for the, uh, the cedars and all of that. It was David's wealth that really uh, got this thing all going. David paid the bills in advance. He assembled the materials and so forth. And uh, Psalm was very, very young when he... Uh, uh, that may be why it took four years before he started. When he took over, it was four years before he started. He spent seven years building the temple. Then he spent 13 years building his palace, all very lavish and extensive. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel, unto Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion. He didn't put it on a cart. We, we've, we've learned that lesson. I think David certainly did. So there's some background here. Solomon obviously followed the Levitical practices, which was that not just a Levite, a family of Kohath had to bear it on their shoulders and so forth. Wherefore all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king in the feast, which was in the seventh month. Now the seventh month on the religious calendar is the first month on the, the um, civil calendar. Uh, and it's the month, it's, uh, it, we're, now we've just plunged into the feasts of Israel. The spring feasts are in Nisan, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Firstfruits. Three feasts in the first month of the religious year, which is the seventh month of the Genesis calendar. But the, the uh, first month of the Exodus calendar. Remember in Exodus they got a second calendar making Nisan the first month. The, all built around Passover. In the fall feasts, we have three feasts. The Feast of Trumpets, feast of, the Yom Kippur, feast, uh, 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 Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, Feast of, uh, of uh, Booths. Uh, we won't take the time now, we've got other things to cover, but I, if you haven't ever studied these feasts carefully, I encourage you to do so. They are not only historical, obviously, each one has a particular role in the history of the nation, but Paul tells us all these things are written aforetime that we might have comfort and knowledge of the Scripture. And... Uh, that the, these things are a shadow of things yet to come. So you want to study these feasts. We believe that the first three feasts are prophetic of Christ's first coming. He was crucified on Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks to that also. Feast of Firstfruits, His resurrection. The Feast of Firstfruits is on the morning after Shabbat, after Passover, which is, means it's always on a Sunday, which is exactly what we celebrate Sunday as a resurrection day, if you will. Because He was the first, he our Firstfruits. The last three feasts... Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and Feast of Tabernacles speak of his second coming in a national way. And uh, that many experts have slightly different perceptions of exactly how they're going to be fulfilled, but it's generally, I think, clear that the three are of the, of the second coming. Now, the one that apparently is ap applicable here is Sukkot, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. This is when, you, you know, if you have Jewish friends, at Sukkot each year in the fall, they build booths in their backyard, typically. It's like going camping. You have to be able to see the sky through the roof, and you've got to have the wind blow through the walls. That's the specification. And the whole idea is to remind them of the wilderness wanderings. But 
the, the, the climax of the, of the Feast of Booths is when they leave their temporary dwellings to go back to their permanent dwellings. And that's exactly what Solomon is doing here with the ark. It's leaving the tent, the tabernacle, to go into the temple, its permanent dwellings. And it was intended, in concept at least, to be its permanent dwelling. This is when the ark is brought to Jerusalem. Also in Matthew 17, we have the transfiguration. And you may recall that Peter, sort of a loss for words, said, gee, maybe we should put, build three, because Elijah and uh, Moses were appearing there also. Let's make three booths. And the fact that he makes that remark caused some scholars to infer that probably that was about the time of, it may have occurring at the Feast of Sukkot. There may be a linkage there of calendars. But that's, that's conjecture, but interesting. But what everybody fails to really analyze adequately in my mind is this very strange feast between the first three and the last three. And that is the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of uh, what we sometimes call Pentecost. It's the strangest feast of the bunch because it's the only occasion in the Old Testament where leavened bread is used. And uh, it has a Gentile flavor. Now, Feast of Weeks is exactly when the church was born. It was literally on the Feast of Weeks, Feast of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And so the Feast of Weeks may have, many scholars who recognize that feel it was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. What they overlook is that there may be a second fulfillment because of some possibilities. I'll leave you to check that out on your own. But I do want you to be sensitive to the calendar. As we go through Chronicles, we want to pick up some broader insights. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, it says, God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now, the word for seasons in the Hebrew is hamoyedim. It really means not seasons, but the appointed times. So God has set up the cosmos, if you will, to keep track of, of appointments that he has set up, strangely enough. And it turns out that there, if you know your Jewish calendar, there are 70 of these appointed times. There are 52 Saturdays, as we would call it, or Shabbats. There are seven days of Passover, which includes the related feast days of that involved. There's one day of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. There's Yom Teruah, which is the Feast of uh, Trumpets. There's, uh, it's celebrated two days now, but that was a rabbinical edition later. Uh, Yom Kippur is a day, obviously. There were seven days of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, and there's a, a day of assembly following that. So every Jew knows that there are 70 appointed times. Now what makes that interesting is, if you take the term Hamoyadim and you have the computer analyze, uh, you would expect by the statistics of the letters that you'd find that cluster of letters come up randomly about five times in the 78,000s of the letters of the book of Genesis. That would be your statistical expectation. What's rather startling is that it only occurs once in Genesis. That's conspicuous in its uniqueness. But what makes it even more provocative, it's at an interval of 70, an equidistant letter sequence basis, and it's centered on Genesis 1.14, the word homoyedim in the text. That's a combination of uh, events that defies uh, being rationalized away by accident. It'd be uh, using switching theory. It's, it would be the, uh, this, the chance that this would happen by unaided chance is about 70 million to one. So that's provocative. And I, I mention it not because it's so important. God's, they say a Jew's catechism is his calendar. And we as Christians need to do more homework in really understanding the Jewish calendar. But more than that, 
as you encounter these kinds of things, what you come away with is a profound respect for the text itself. Because if you changed one letter in the book of Genesis, this wouldn't happen. You begin to realize that God gave the Torah to Moses letter by letter. And because there's hundreds of these kinds of examples. Let's move on. All the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark and they brought up the ark and the tabernacle of the congregation and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle. These did the priests and the Levites bring up. Now you may recall the tabernacle was at the center of the camp going back a little bit entering from the east, east, uh, uh, east going eastward. We have uh, uh, east at the bottom of this chart, west at the top, north is on the right, and south on the left. That's the conventional, ancient way of doing a map. And uh, Moses and the priests dwelt, set up their camp on the eastern side of the tabernacle, the one door and so forth. The Gershonites were at the other end. There are three families in the Levites, Gershonites, Kohathites, and Merarites. Each of the three families were specified specific tasks to be responsible for. If they were direct descendants of Aaron, they were priests with Moses up here. But if you weren't one of those, you would be in one of these three uh, families. The Gershonites were responsible for the curtains, the coverings, the hangings, the linen fence, that sort of stuff. The Kohathites were responsible for the, what we would call furniture or all the implements, all the uh, uh, portable things. Which were the ark was first covered with the curtains. Kohathites never actually saw it; they was always covered when they saw it. And uh, but uh, then the Merarites took the boards, the pillars. The whole tabernacle itself was a portable building with vertical boards that were covered with gold and interlocked, sitting on silver sockets. All of that the Merarites had to uh, transport. They had twice as many oxen and and uh, uh, and wagons and so forth compared to the others. Anyway, moving on. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him before the ark sacrificed sheep and oxen which could not be told nor numbered for multitude. That's a bunch because we're going to see some large numbers coming up here on some other issues. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord into his place to the oracle of the house to the most holy place even under the wings of the cherubims. Remember, there were two very large cherubim, these strange winged creatures that were in gold, you know, 15 feet high and wingspan 15 feet wide, virtually. And between these where the Ark of the Covenant stood, in the Holy of Holies. For the cherubim spread forth their wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubims covered the Ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves of the Ark, that the ends of the staves were seen from the Ark before the Oracle, but they were not seen without. And there it is unto this day. So they took the staves out. What's the point of that? The whole concept is the Ark of the Covenant was to move no more. It was through wandering the wilderness. It was now at its permanent home. It's equivalent uh, 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 saying it is finished. It's permanent. It's basic. It's established. The Ark speaks of Christ. Everything in the tabernacle, every detail speaks of Christ. The Ark, no exception. Basically, it's, saying that it, it's, it's a way of saying uh, Acts 4.12. There will no, be no other way of salvation. It's done. And he's also our Sabbath rest. You might read the Epistle to Hebrews, chapter 4. He, uh, he is our rest. And uh, thirdly, he is now preparing a place for us. 
And that's what John 14, verse 2 and 3 and following deals with. They drew out the staves of the ark. That is sort of underscores that it's intended no longer to move. Now, because of their lack of faithfulness, they will, it will move. And we'll talk a lot about that later on in the book of Second Chronicles. We'll show you some things that most scholars have missed in the text itself about the ark. Then verse 10 says, There was nothing in the ark save two tables which Moses put therein at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel and when they came out of Egypt. Now you may remember that from Exodus, but what bothers many scholars, there were some other things that at one time were in the ark, apparently, and they're not there now. When we read the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews points out that, speaking of the Holy of Holies, after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of, covenant, of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So the writer admits that there's a lot we don't know anymore, but he is under the impression the writer of the Hebrews, that at least at one time there was a pot that had manna as commemorating the uh, Exodus 14 and all of that, and also Aaron's rod that budded. Remember the confrontation with Aaron and all that? Well, that was th those two items were memorialized by putting, if not in, maybe alongside or with the Ark of the Covenant. By the time you get to Chronicles, that is no longer there. And so there's a mystery. Scholars speculate what might have happened. Somehow along the way, they've uh, dropped by the wayside. The manna was a symbol, it was a symbol of Christ, who's the bread of life, who feeds those who are his own. And that's an echo of number 17 and elsewhere. And then the manna would disappear if the people didn't gather it. Really? That's interesting. And if it was not eaten the same day, it would spoil. You couldn't gather manna for somebody else. Everyone had to get their own. There's, a month, there's about 17 different sermon messages you can get out of uh, the manna. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music